Good to be with you all this morning. It's good to be back in this building. Feels like I'm among friends. And I said yes to speaking on this topic of anxiety because anxiety has been a part of my life ever since I can remember. When I was in elementary school, I had a long bus ride every morning, 45 minutes to get to school. And because the bus ride was so long, I had to be out at the end of the driveway quite early in the morning in order to catch the bus. And I can remember lying in my bed many nights, afraid to go to sleep because I was sure that I would wake up too late and I'd miss the bus. So in order to save time in the morning, I started to lay out my clothes that I would wear the next morning, the night before, and putting them right by the bed, and then I'd pack my backpack and put it right by the door. But it still wasn't enough. I'd still lie there worrying. So then I began to sleep in my clothes. <laughs> I would dress myself in the clothes I would wear the next morning, even to the point of putting on my runners. I have vivid memories of lying in my bed on my back, in my outfit for the next day, with my shoes on, and gently lifting the comforter and then lowering it onto my body, careful not to wrinkle my clothes, and trying to sleep like this, very still. I've been a worrier for decades. I studied anxiety disorders in grad school. I've seen therapists to manage my own anxiety, and I've been on medication for anxiety and depression. So the topic that I'm speaking on this morning is not just an intellectual curiosity for me, it is a lifelong lived experience. But friends, I want to make it clear, I am not a mental health expert. I'm a pastor, I'm a spiritual director, I'm a celebrant, I do weddings and funerals, and I'm a gardener. I help my wife with her gardening business. So I invite you to join me in reflecting on a passage of scripture that lies at the intersection of both my personal and professional experience. In the middle of a block of teaching known as the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has some words to say about worry and anxiety. Some of these words may be familiar to you. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink or about your body or what you'll wear. But look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore, don't worry, saying, what will we eat or drink or wear? For it's the Gentiles who strive after all these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. So God, as we consider this text this morning, would you grant us all wisdom to discern what is true, what is helpful, and what would bring abundant life to us this day in Jesus' name. And all God's beloved said together, 
As we consider this passage and the topic of anxiety, it's important for me to set out at the beginning what the sermon is and what it is not. I am not attempting to offer the definitive take on the human experience of anxiety. And I'm not trying to offer a biblical remedy for anxiety disorders. In his book, How Do I Help a Hurting Friend, Rod Wilson, who's worked as a psychologist, a pastor, and who was the president of Regent College for years, suggests that most mental health challenges are multifaceted. They have physical, relational, emotional, action, cognitive, historical, environmental, and a spiritual component. And in reflecting on this passage with you today, I'm offering some insights related to the spiritual aspect of anxiety, one aspect of, of anxiety. That said, let's listen to Jesus. Jesus says, do not worry about what you eat, what you'll drink, or about what you'll wear. Now, I have three children, and when they're doing something that I'd like them to stop, do you know what doesn't work? Telling them to just stop it. Ordering them to stop fighting, stop scrolling, stop yelling. Or like last night, my middle child setting off fireworks, which is illegal in Delta. <laughs> this isn't the service that's recorded, is it, Jake? <laughs> we can edit that, right, Lucas? That usually doesn't work when I yell, stop it. It didn't work last night. My middle son said, oh, I'll just pay the fine if I get caught. But when my body is charged with anxiety, when my heart is pounding, when I'm keyed up in a state of hypervigilance, I don't find it very helpful. When somebody says to me, stop it, just calm down, Lee, get a hold of yourself. In fact, that often makes my anxiety worse. I feel out of control in those moments. Thankfully, I do not sleep with my shoes on anymore. But anxiety still keeps me up at night. I live in a house in Ladner, and like Richmond, Ladner is at sea level. A family of five lives in our basement suite, and our suite is kept dry by a sump pump that turns on when the water table rises, as it does this time of year when the tides get really high. If the sump pump doesn't come on, the basement floods. This time of year, we tend to get a lot of rainstorms, and with the rainstorms comes wind, and with the wind comes power outages. And if the power's out, the sump pump doesn't work, and the basement floods. So during storms, I have to get a generator ready to power the pumps to keep the suite dry. Some of you may remember last weekend, we had one of these rain and wind storms, and I worried all day, and I worried most of the night, terrified that the power would go out and the basement would flood. What I was really worried about is that the power would go out while I was asleep and that I wouldn't know it and I couldn't get out the generator in time. That worry that I experienced last weekend about the storm was on top of a low-grade anxiety that is active in my body almost all the time. And these days, a lot of that anxiety is fueled by climate change and sea level rise due to glacier melt and thermal expansion because as water heats, it expands. Atmospheric rivers and increased freshet, which is the runoff from the mountains that swells the Fraser River near where I live and challenges the woefully inadequate diking structure in Delta. And I worry about our family's wealth, all residing in a home on a floodplain. Why do we live there again? And the sixth mass extinction of life on planet Earth that will affect, affect the lives of my children and possibly their children. Those things keep me up at night. 
And it turns out I'm not alone in my worry. According to the World Health Organization, one in seven young people live with a mental health condition and anxiety and depression are the most common. Turns out I'm not alone in my eco-anxiety either. Earlier this year, a study was done, and 1,000 young people, ages 16 to 25, were surveyed in Canada about how climate change affects their lives. 56% reported feeling afraid, sad, anxious, and powerless. 78% of young people surveyed reported that climate change impacts their overall mental health. 37% reported that their feelings about climate change negatively impact their daily functioning. And yet Jesus says, do not worry. And it's tempting to say, oh, well, Jesus was out of touch. Surely those ancient words are irrelevant to our time of polycrisis. But many people in the crowd that came to hear Jesus' Sermon on the Mount were living on the edge too. Most would have been rural subsistence farmers living hand to mouth. Jesus speaks to the anxiety of folks who are one illness, their one injury, their one crop failure, away from destitution or having to sell themselves into slavery to pay off a debt. Jesus' followers were not worried about where they should go out to eat for dinner at night or about upgrading their wardrobe to fit with the latest fast fashion trends. They were worried about securing the, the bottom, the foundation of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. They're worried about getting food in their bellies and clothes on their bodies. Therefore, I think it would be cruel if Jesus told a vulnerable population consumed with simply surviving to just stop worrying. So there must be something else going on. Let's listen more closely. Jesus says, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat, drink, or what you'll wear. Now, I have heard beloved pastor, mentor of mine, Daryl Johnson, say, whenever you come across a therefore in Scripture, you are to ask yourself, what is the therefore, therefore? It's a good line, I know. A few verses before Jesus says, do not worry. He says, do not store up treasures, or more literally, do not store up storehouses. Same word. Another time, Jesus tells a story about a man who has more food than he knows what to do with, so he builds more storehouses to house a surplus food. The word storehouse comes up in the passage that I read earlier. Jesus says, the birds don't gather food into barns. That word translated barn can also be translated storehouse. Jesus' command to not worry is actually the punchline to his teaching on not hoarding extra stuff, which is interesting. In the Bible, prophets critique leaders for living extravagant lives, for hoarding food and lording their excess over the food insecure. So when we read in the Gospels that Jesus has compassion on people who are hungry and he multiplies uh, fish and a few loaves of bread and feeds thousands with plenty to spare, Jesus isn't just flexing his miracle muscles. He's defying the lie of scarcity that says, no one will look after you, so take as much as you can. And when your storehouse, your barn, your garage, or bank account is full, build more, save more, because it's never enough. Jesus is inviting us into a different economy, the kingdom of God, or the kingdom, the K-I-N-D-O-M of God, to expand our definition of family, who our neighbors are, and who we are obligated to share with. 
It's been said that the world actually doesn't have a food security problem or scarcity problem. We have a food distribution problem. According to economic anthropologist Jason Hickel, if the world consumed what the average person in a rich income nation like Canada consumes in a year, we would need 3.8 Earths to sustain our consumption. People in wealthy nations consume an average, this is like me, I consume an average of 28 tons of stuff a year. And in Delta, we have actually the landfill for Metro Vancouver. It is a mountain of, of trash. I was there with my gardening, our gardening business the other day. It is huge, and it is gross. And you all outsource it to where I live. Thank you very much. <laughs> but guess what? Your time is coming because it's filling up, and they're going to shut it down, and we got to open up a new one. <laughs> If we were all to consume at the level of the average person in the rest of the world, we'd consume seven tons of stuff a year, and that is precisely what the planet can sustain. Seven tons, not 28. Now, this is a sermon on mental health, not economic or ecological health. But the point I want to make before I move on is that these things are related in his book, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture, Gabor Mate writes, if we could begin to see much illness itself, not as a cruel twist of fate, but rather as an expected and therefore normal consequence of abnormal, unnatural circumstances, it would have revolutionary implications for how we approach everything health-related. Then this incredible paragraph, the ailing bodies and minds among us would no longer be regarded as expressions of individual pathology, but as living alarms, directing our attention toward where our society has gone askew and where our prevailing certainties and assumptions about health are, in fact, fictions. Those are some packed sentences. Friends, the point I'd like to make is sometimes our anxiety is not so much a sign that something is wrong with us as an individual, but sometimes our anxiety is an alarm alerting us that something is wrong with the toxic systems, oppressive structures, and dehumanizing corporate cultures that we're caught up in. That said... A larger systemic analysis of the role of principalities and powers that they play in contributing to our anxiety is beyond the scope of this message. So for the rest of this sermon, I'd like to focus on our individual experience of anxiety. And to me, it seems like the problem that Jesus is addressing in this passage is anxiety that comes from trying to manage our futures all on our own. People store up storehouses because they become fixated on the future and anxiously try to control it. Well, this is what it looks like for me. When I begin to worry, my focus narrows and my mind locks into some dumpster fire of a future that I am sure will come to pass. I engage in a sort of doomsday prophecy. This happened to me last Friday night. I was convinced that the power would go out in Ladner and the basement would flood if I wasn't prepared. Thankfully, it turns out I don't have the spiritual gift of prophecy. Power did not go out in Ladner. It went out in a lot of other places, but not Ladner. Now, sometimes the narrowing focus of anxiety does help me direct energy to a particular problem. We all need a certain amount of anxiety and worry in our lives. It can be helpful. But when I become flooded with anxiety, I tend to only see a bad version of the future barreling toward the present, and I'm the only thing in between. 
Often my laser focus on the impending catastrophe prevents me from seeing the actual sources of help and support that are available to me in the moment. I'm looking right past them or beyond them. Sometimes it feels like a sea of chaotic darkness closes in and the small bright window of a way out becomes smaller and smaller and smaller till it vanishes. And then old lies materialize and haunt my mind inaudibly shouting, you are alone. If you don't prevent this, disaster will strike and it will be the end of you. But Jesus says, do not worry. Look at the birds of the air. Consider the flowers of the field. And I know this kind of sounds like a greeting card at best. Or spiritual bypassing at worst. Spiritual bypassing is when we use spiritual sayings and cliches to ignore inconvenient, challenging, or painful truths. Something awful happens. And somebody might glibly say, oh, don't worry, that's all part of God's plan. Spiritual bypassing is what Karl Marx was critiquing when he called religion an opiate of the masses. Spirituality can use a hyper-focus on the future to distract people from the problems of the present. This, uh, uh, this came to me, I was reminded of this last Sunday when at our church service at Estuary, we were lamenting the almost unspeakable violence that is taking place in the Holy Land. Grieving, praying, lamenting. Came home, turned on the TV, and was flipping through the channels and saw a TV preacher waxing eloquently trying to answer a question submitted by a viewer. And the question was this, if there's eating in heaven, will there also be elimination? Yeah, it's funny. It is funny. You can laugh, those of you who got it. But spiritual bypassing is not a joke. Jesus calls our attention back to the present. His main preaching point was the time has come. The time's been fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. And he calls us to wake up to God's life-giving, wondrous, creative presence in the here and now. Instead of distracting us from present reality, I believe true spirituality, helpful and healthy spirituality, invites us to confront the fullness of life, both in its stunning beauty and its crushing brutality, and to face it with courage and compassion while being rooted in love. Theologian Walter Burghardt offers one of the best definitions of the role of spirituality I've heard when he writes of taking a long, loving look at the real does your spirituality invite you, equip you to take a long, loving look at the real, the really beautiful and the really brutal, and to face it with grace, courage, and compassion? Or are we ignoring the horrors in the world, indulging our intellectual curiosities, about the future. I believe Jesus is kind of getting at this long, loving look of the real when he tells us to stop worrying. Maybe he's saying, stop believing in your own uninspired prophecy about the future. Look at the birds of the air. Consider the flowers of the field. Redirect your gaze from an imagined future to the very real present. And I could see Jesus speaking there on that hillside, offering the Sermon on the Mount, and there being birds flying over and saying, look at the birds of the air. Look at those flowers over there. 
Now, each time my wife and I had a child, we were filled with gratitude and awe and wonder, and I needed to see a therapist because my anxiety spiked. <laughs> Seemed like each child disturbed the equilibrium of our family system, and I needed help to cope with what felt like an unmanageable life. And one of the therapists I saw taught me to do a simple practice. She invited me when I noticed, which is a grace, noticing that we're anxious, when I noticed that I'm anxious, to engage in a sensory audit, to name five things I could see, four things I could hear, three things I could touch, two things I could smell, and one thing I could taste. Engaging my senses helps me bring my mind's awareness from fixating on a future to the present. Maybe Jesus is inviting us to do something similar. Look at the birds. Watch them. What might they show you about God has created the world to flourish? The words look and look at the birds of the air and consider and consider the flowers of the field mean to gaze upon and to learn from. Slow down, watch and learn. Notice that the birds aren't building up barns to store up 10 years worth of food, nor are they weaving nice little couches to just lie there and wait for somebody else to take care of them. Maybe when they're young, but not when they're mature. But as they move from branch to branch, they find their plant kin, share food to eat. And as they live in right, respectful, and reciprocal relationships with their neighbors, their heavenly Father feeds them. Taking a long, loving look at the real helps us attend to the moment. Can we do that? Can we slow down enough to sense a relational presence in the room, a divine spirit flowing like the wind? Can we open our hearts to an awareness of Jesus' presence with us always? Jesus who died, who was buried, who rose from the dead, proving that God's resurrection power is the most creative and powerful force in the universe. Can you sense Christ in this moment, compassionately holding all things, Christ who will make all things new one day? Friends, a few years ago, I hit the lowest point of my life to date. I, was a, I had experienced a series of events that left me dealing with complex trauma. I wasn't working, I wasn't able to, I was experiencing panic attacks, spikes of anxiety, where my breathing was disrupted. And on recommendation of a doctor, I had begun taking medication for anxiety and depression because at times thoughts of ending my own life would come into my head as the only way I could think of, of escaping the trauma of my past and the bleak future that I imagined. And one day while my wife was at work and my kids were at school, I wandered into our backyard because I didn't have much to do. And in the back corner, there's a large oak tree whose canopy hosts many kinds of birds. Hummingbirds, stellar jays, flickers, chickadees. And in some of the middle branches of the tree, you can often see a fifth species. Two barred owls who sleep there during the day. So I decided to take Jesus up on his command to consider the birds. So I went out to the tree, only I didn't see the owls. They weren't, worth, they weren't there that day. So I sat on the ground under the tree. And I attended to my senses. I could hear a light rustle of leaves above, one. 
I heard cars on the road in the front of my house, two. I heard a door close in the apartment building behind me, three. And I heard a muffled conversation coming from the lane, four. At the base of the tree, we've put a blanket of wood chips, and I could feel their rough edges underneath me, one. I picked up and turned a large wood chip between my forefinger and thumb, two. And I pressed the palm of my other hand into the wood shards, three, and began moving my hand back and forth, clearing away the larger jagged chips, revealing another world. Land crustaceans, wood bugs. Land crustaceans is a more elegant term, though. <laughs> Land crustaceans burrowed down between tiny pieces of decomposing wood into a dark, damp, loamy layer of the earth full of both life and death. This I expected. What I touched next, I did not. A small cluster of bones and patches of fur. The owls often perch above where I was sitting, and I found myself in contact with the remnants of a pellet, an oval mass of fur, tiny skulls, jaws, and teeth. You see, the owl's body sorts through devoured prey, allowing soft tissue to be digested while gathering together indigestible parts into pellets to be passed back up through the digestive system. You didn't know you'd learn about the digestive workings of owls, did you, this morning? A little bit of bonus content. <laughs> my attention was summoned both from my traumatic past and the bleak future I was fixated on, and I was fully open to the present moment to the wisdom of creation and to the presence of God. And in earlier times, the church believed that God revealed God's self through two books, the book of Scripture and the book of creation. And in that moment, I literally touched upon a truth that my anxiety had veiled. Beneath my trauma and anxiety, there is a deeper magic at work in the world. A divine alchemy and resurrection power is at play in dark places. Sometimes life gives way to death. You live long enough and you find that out. Jobs are lost. Relationships come to an end. Dreams collapse. But doom is not the final word. Scripture and creation teach us death itself can be decomposed. Grief can be composted. Pain can be broken down and transformed, transfigured, if you will, so that it feeds life again. The owl's ability to pass the harmful parts of death while absorbing its nutrients preaches hope and preached hope to me as I sat there in that pile of wood chips that even trauma can be metabolized and even tragedy can be composted and integrated into new life. Through practice, the help of community, the counsel of wise guides, the quiet companionship of friends, through the gift of medication, and through the grace of God, our bodies can sort through the harmful events that we've had to swallow in life. Now, that time considering the owls in my backyard didn't instantaneously usher me from a place of languishing to flourishing in my mental health. But it did give me hope on a really dark day. That if creation and Christ can bring new life from the dead, maybe my future wasn't as bleak as I had prophesied. 
there's a line in Jesus' words about worry that's always kind of troubled me until this week. Jesus says God provides for the birds, and aren't you more valuable than they? And I've always felt like, is that a bit of a backhanded like dig against the other-than-human world, being less important? But then I learned that the Greek word translated value also means different, and also is related to the notion of bearing a burden. So perhaps the psychological burdens of a human are different than a sparrow's. Maybe God shares our burdens in a unique way. Maybe Jesus is saying, do not worry. You're not alone to face the future. God is with you in the present and will help you bear your burdens. Friends, I drove all the way from Ladner this morning. And those of you Vancouverites, that's like two bridges in a tunnel. (laughs) It's like the other end of the world. I drove here to remind you and to remind us of a truth that I need to hear and I need to preach to myself again and again. I came to remind us all that God came in the flesh in the person of Jesus. And in Jesus, God enters into profound solidarity with those of us who worry, those of us who can't sleep at night. Jesus helps carry our burdens. He shoulders the cross outside Jerusalem to the place of the skull. And the one who tells us, don't worry about what to wear, he was stripped of his clothes. He was crucified on the cross, hanging there exposed to the elements. He becomes dehydrated. And the one who tells us, don't worry about what to drink, he cries out, I am thirsty takes on our most fundamental anxieties. And in perhaps the most anxious moment of Jesus' life, the darkness of unconsciousness closing in upon his mind, he calls out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But just before he takes his final breath, this side of the resurrection, he cries out, Father, into your hands I commit, I entrust, I give over my spirit. Taking upon himself the anxieties of the world, Jesus carries them in his body to the only place where they can be fully held. He carries them into the hands of God. Hands that are full of compassion, creativity, and power. Those hands can work with whatever future tragedy comes your way. Even death itself. And those hands can bring new life from the ground. And when the resurrected Jesus appears to his disciples, do you remember what he does? Shows them his wounded hands. He says, peace. Then he repeats it. Peace be with you. And perhaps he's saying, look, At the hands of God, they have rung with the worries of the world. They've been pierced by the worst evil has to offer, and yet they've been made new. So friends, in these worrisome times, where bombs drop and seas rise, May you know that these same hands are with you always. At your back, giving you guidance. 
and underneath you, holding you up, lifting you up when you're struggling to put one foot in front of the other. So may we all receive a measure of peace from this good news. If you are willing, would you join me in a prayerful moment? In the stillness of this moment, I invite you, if you're comfortable doing so, if it seems right to you, to bring your awareness to your body. Sense if there's any anxiety within you. And using your sanctified imagination, if there are issues, people, events you're anxious about, to place them in the Father's compassionate and creative hands. And may you know that all these things and all of you are held in love. In Jesus' name, amen.